Hello, and welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast for those curious about the non-finance aspects or the human side of working in accounting and finance. I'm Susan Nicriazon, and while I believe there is beauty in balancing a set of financial statements, the intricacies that underpin the workings are wondrous. The real beauty for me is in working with people. The intricacies that underpin our workings are wondrous too. And not one particular combination of input or formula will ever generate the same result. Join me and my guests as we place a lens on some of these wondrous intricacies that make us unique. And as we share insights, knowledge and strategies to inspire your life beyond the numbers. morning I'm joined by John Kamak. John I'm delighted to have you on Life Beyond the Numbers. Thanks Susan good to be here. (laughs) John there's a quote in one of your books from an elderly woman in Zambia and the quote reads you people do not understand that your words do not belong to our minds. I think this is a fabulous quote (laughs) and it can be applied to many aspects of life. Yeah, I, I really like that quote too. And I, it was a gem when I found it. And I think you're right, it does apply across the board for a lot of things. And when, I know when I first started to travel, I realised people from different cultures look at the world differently to what I do, which is it's fine. It's not better or worse. It's just different. And I think if you're trying to communicate with people from other cultures, you need to understand that as a, as a basis, really, that when you're explaining something you know, it might be misinterpreted. And I think accountants particularly know this feeling if they're talking to a non-finance person, that you'll see that blank look that comes across somebody's face when you're talking about maybe something technical. It's national culture and regional culture, all of that. But it's also organisational culture and professional culture. People are are very different in the way that they work. Yeah, and our words don't necessarily belong to other people's minds. Exactly, yeah. You yourself are no stranger to cross-cultural communication, having worked in something like 60 countries. Amazing. (laughs) How? Well, I I find it amazing too, actually. They just mount up over the years. But uh, I mean, the starting point was really when I qualified with SIPFA as an accountant. I was working with a local authority. And at that stage, I knew I wanted to travel and I knew I wanted to work with a charity. Those, Those two things I knew, but not quite what that meant. And the job came up with Oxfam, which I applied for and got. And it, it had the wonderful title of Disasters Accountant. Ah! I partly applied for that title as much as I did for the job, I think. But I wanted to work for Oxfam. And that's where it started, really. It was a wonderful job. Probably the best job I've ever had. I, I think it was fantastic. And part of it was going into natural emergencies, famines, floods, those areas, Horn of Africa, and a few accounting disasters too, I have to say. There were one or two things that went wrong, you know, that you could see that maybe it could be done better. And it was fascinating because what Oxfam did at that time, when an emergency struck, like a famine or a flood, if there was going to be big funding from the big donors, the EU or, or the government donor, they would send an accountant as one of the very first people to go in. So I know in Sudan, when um, the Ethiopia crisis was there and war in northern Ethiopia, over time, people started to get refugees coming across the border to Sudan. Mm-hmm. So the Oxfam office at that point was a very small office in Sudan. It just had one country rep 
and an administrator. And within six months, they had 150 staff working there. And, and we had vast amounts of funding from the UN, from EU, from the British government. And that meant that we got, you know, several millions of pounds. And without accounting skills right at the beginning, we wouldn't have been able to claim that money. So although they'd allocated it for us, we needed to send them out the receipts or whatever it was and summaries of all the expenses. If we didn't have that, it would be great problems. So we would lose real money. So the cost of my trip to go there might have been staying in a hotel and airfare a few thousand, but we could have been saving hundreds of thousands if we didn't have those systems. So that was really, really important. Mm. Well, getting those foundations right at the beginning of something, a scale up anyway, for any business is important. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And I think I think I learned a lot from that and really how, how to work in terms of people who weren't accountants who needed very quickly to know what was happening. And you can imagine an emergency, people were dashing around, lots and lots of people there. And people's priority isn't doing accounting. It isn't doing that record keep, or even keeping the receipts or even getting receipts, which is also a big problem that you think, well, actually, these people don't read and write who I'm buying this stuff from. How do I actually prove that I've got this stuff? So there are ways in which you have to be challenged as an accountant saying, well, you know, I know, I know these are the principles, but actually it's not working in this area. So how do I then look at getting some evidence externally to make sure that we can claim this money back? So those are very challenging things to look at and, and finding innovative ways around it that you can say, well, yeah, actually, we could do this. And it will be OK as long as somebody else signed to say that 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 purchase was official and it was independent and, and all of that. So we came up with a whole load of new systems that were really useful. And the banking systems, moving cash around must have been yes, quite a challenge. It, it was. And I think Oxfam was very ethical in its approach. And I think one of the things we, we looked at at one stage was the exchange rate that we were getting for the money we were putting in. I mean, Oxfam was getting money from these big donors and then transferring vast amounts of money to the office in Khartoum. And then it went to the various parts of Sudan. And one of the things we looked at was getting a better exchange rate. And what you could do at that stage, if you had traveller's checks, the exchange rate was probably giving you double the amount in Sudanese pounds as it would do if you went through the official channels. Somebody explained to me at the time and saying, well, do you want to rob the government or do you want to rob poor people who are getting this aid? And which one do you want to do? And, and I think we were in danger and would still be in danger if we went down that route of not going through the official channels. Oxfam would have been thrown out of Sudan and that would have been disastrous for the you know, thousands of people who were benefiting from what we did. Absolutely. The ethical considerations in anything like that, they're never straightforward, are they? And that's why it's so important to have finance people. Yeah in yeah. these situations as well. I think that's right. And then sort of work out what the practicalities are as a result of the decisions you're making and, and understand really what's going on. And I think if I hadn't been there and seen and, and travelled around Sudan and travelled to refugee camps and things like that, I wouldn't have known. I really would just sort of say, well, I'll make a decision in the UK and it would have been completely unworkable. So you, you almost have to see what's on the ground. And I think that's something of the cross-cultural stuff that... It's not just about rules. It's about actually understanding the culture, understanding where people are, and the fact that people just can't, in those days, couldn't communicate easily. And we were relying on 
telex in those early days you know, which people younger people wouldn't remember telex but it was i like, don't no, 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 I, I only just do I have to say, so. but there was one hotel in khartoum that was absolutely fantastic and all the agencies that were working there at the time hundred of more of them i think all relied on this hotel for their telexes so you'd see a queue into their office they were the one with the telex machine and everybody had to go there every day to pick up the telexes from their offices all in different parts of the world and people said that they did a fantastic you know they they needed an award that hotel for all they did for the emergency and it was partly through their efforts that people were fed or had medical supplies or whatever it helped that that enormously mm. from that disasters job I, I then became head of international finance at Oxfam and that was probably looking at some of the disasters too but also at more longer term development programs so I managed to travel to a, a lot of other areas that had programs that were operating and some of that was about looking at the financial aspects of it some of it was about appointing staff sometimes or just giving um, advice on how you set up systems to make sure that the program worked well and I, I, I recognise that actually accounting is not just about the figures and numbers. It's very much about having an impact on the programme. So I often use this shorthand about budgeting, that good budgeting means good development. Mm -hmm. So if you get your budgeting right, you'll get better development. So some of the things people are working in areas which are really, really tricky and communication's not easy. A lot of the things that we would take for granted are just not there. But the finance is one of the things that you can control. And if that's good, then actually you have a better impact. You can improve the programme as a direct result of that. And I think that's really exciting and motivates me no end, really, to think, actually, it's not about the figures. It's about human beings. It's about their health care or, you know, they're, they're being fed or whatever it is in an emergency. Bringing it to life. Yeah, very much so. Yes. And saying this is it's not just figures on a page. It's actually real people and, and life and death decisions, really, about who who is actually helped or not helped. So we need good information. And that really helps us to, to do that. I went from Oxfam. It, Oxfam's, the two jobs I did there were just the best. You know, it's hard to go anywhere else after Oxfam, <laughs> I have to say. Um, and other agencies are the same, I, I'm sure. But I went, I wanted to do more teaching and training. And so I applied for a job at Oxford Brookes University in their uh, business school as an academic, really, a, a lecturer. And, and um, I did some research as well. But it also gave me the opportunity to start working part time doing consultancy work within the international development sector, which was a big attraction for me because that really was very important to me. And I was there about 10, 11 years. Now I've got more of a, a sort of broad base of, of organisations I work with regularly. So that, that's, mm. that's really good. And it gives me a time too to do the writing and research for the writing and to travel for that as well. So it's a nice mixture of things that I, I really like doing and, and want to continue to do. Mm. Well, I first came across your books in 2003 when I was working in Uganda with uh, Goal at the time. And it was such a practical financial management guide that really helped me prepare for trainings and workshops locally. And I was bringing the numbers to life for people, but also getting rid of the jargon and the technical speak. And I've referred to this book 
so many times and even recommended it to somebody recently who was struggling with explaining financial to non-finance people. What prompted you in the first place to write these books, John? When I left Oxfam, that was one of the things I recognised was needed. And the first one was around something for small community groups who had very little or no financial experience. They wanted to start some sort of programme or project and they needed some accounting to get the funding and, and to report on the funding that they got. All of those things were essential, but really nobody in the community who, who could do any accounting. So mm. what I wanted to do was to have something that was straightforward enough so that people would feel, oh, yeah, I could do that. And, and really, it's going back to a very basic system of a cash book. And then how do you use that to help you think about basic budgeting? How do you use it to do a bank wreck? And how do you do it at the end of year? What sort of summary can you have? So it was basically allowing people to produce something like what I've described as a receipts and payments account, the very simplest cash-based accounting account, which people here would recognise, I guess, for local community groups, wherever they are. So it might be from a parent teachers association or a faith-based group, something like that, that has a report and at the annual general meeting, somebody presents some accounting information, which is probably fairly basic, but good enough for the purpose. It's now in its third edition, I'm amazed to say, <laughs> but what I've added as I've gone along is really some training materials with it. So somebody could pick it up as the trainer and just say, ah, oh, yeah, that book will help me to do all the things I need. And then from then on, I sort of thought, well, actually, I recognise that I'm working with a lot of managers of organisations. And I know when if you're working with projects internationally and culturally, a lot of people say, well, actually, if we've got confidence in the person who's running the organisation, then we'll give them money. If we haven't got that confidence, we won't. So they need to be held to become more conversant with financial management because the donors would say to them, well, you know, are your programmes good? If they are, tick that one. Are your financial management systems good? Yeah, if you can tick that one, we'd, we'd be happy. We'll give you money. If that one isn't good, we don't give you any money. So actually, again, the finance is, is prompting that we have things that we can do or not do, depending on how good it is. So that, I think, is really, really an important one. So the book about building financial capacity was very much around supporting those people and giving them so such basic skills, the working knowledge of how finance worked. And then the third one that I did was, was really looking at this idea again of people having the blank looks, you know, how do we communicate? Because what I was finding was I like to train people in finance. That's absolutely fine. And people will learn a lot from that. But unless we've got good communication between finance and non-finance people, it kind of breaks down. So if finance people are talking in financial terms and technical terms, or they're not terribly qualified, you find in a lot of projects, it's somebody who's perhaps done the equivalent of, I don't know, school exams in accounting. Mm. It's that sort of level, but not any anything on the professional side. They may have gone to university, but the university may not be a lot more. So people who are not that skilled in finance and certainly not skilled in communicating the finance to people who need to know the managers, directors, those people. So that was the communication book um, that tried to address some of those issues and say, well, how can we do this better? What do we need to say? What do we need to say as finance people, but also what do we need to know as programme people? And mm. how can we put those two bits together to make sure that really 
it, it would work a, a whole lot better and improve the impact. And, and then your latest book, John, is cross-cultural, organisational and financial training. And we met in February and we chatted about this briefly. And at that stage, it was going to be a smaller book, but you've adapted, I think, to the change in the world. <laughs> well, if you ask what I did in lockdown, that's the answer. Really. And it, the timing of it was, was perfect in many ways. It was due to come out originally around February, March time, but it wasn't quite ready. And what I also realised is that because we couldn't have that contact, people were doing more and more online training. So my my original idea was really for face-to-face training in different parts of the world or even face-to-face communication with people from from elsewhere and I think that changed and I realized actually this online training may be all we've got for a while and also with things like climate change and people not using airplanes as you know anywhere near as much possibly in the future online training is going to become much bigger part of, of the way that we do things Um, So I was able to add another chapter on that and actually amend quite a lot of the things that meant it was more appropriate for both face-to-face and for online training. And I think the other thing that happened, interestingly, was that we became much more aware of the Black Lives Matter movement, rightly so, and, and need to be aware of that. And I feel this book is actually a contribution to that, because if we can understand other people's culture, whether it's racial culture or national or whatever organizational we are then in a better place to start making those bridges and making sure that we can work together effectively and actually benefiting from other people's cultures and and, and understanding that uh, that way of working and I think that's the bit that really is is helpful and alongside that what I was able to bring in was some background from anthropology and, and this is where anthropology meets accounting in a way. <laughs> it's the two go together. And some of those insights that people have, although they're not about accounting necessarily, they apply to how we communicate in accounting. And there's one example by an anthropologist who was working some years ago now, Edward T. Hall, who did a lot of foundational work and came up with this idea of high context culture and low context culture. It divides the world into two, which you could say is a little bit broad in the extreme that you know, there's just two groups. But the high context culture are people who consider relationships are the key, if I'm using the shorthand. So, for example, if you went to a meeting in, in East Africa, let's say in Kenya, when you go to a meeting there, you arrive, everyone's arrived, but you don't start the meeting for perhaps, you know, 20 minutes, half an hour. You talk in general terms, what are you doing? How are things going? And, you know, how's your family? There's a lot of that goes on. Where here, if you go to a meeting, you just say, well, let's get our agendas out. We'll start, you know, let's have a look at the minutes or whatever it is, you know, you do that immediately. And I found actually the way that people do it in high context cultures is, is better if particularly if you've got controversial things on the, on the agenda, if you're trying to sort something out which is quite sensitive and delicate, if you've had that building trust in the first 20 minutes, what you do then is much easier. And I sometimes use that here and, and in other places because I think it's a better way, actually, um, as well as just being a pleasanter experience of going to the meeting. And people would say, oh, well, we haven't got time for that. But actually, you'd probably spend the same amount of time 
but you spend more on the business side because it's more complicated because you haven't got that trust. You know, so there's lots of things we can learn from that. So he said low context culture, more information based. The countries that people come from or live in, in Africa, Asia, the Middle East, Southern Europe um, and South America are what he would describe as high context culture, relationship based. And the ones that are low context culture are Northern Europe. So the UK would be included in that and and uh, North America. So Australia, Asia is a bit of a mixture, I think, and Pacific Islands are as well. But I think there's a mixture in all countries. So to say it's, you know, you're either one end or the other, you're either high or low is probably not terribly helpful. But it does mean you've got this sort of structure. And I think it's more of a spectrum, I would say. We're all somewhere on that spectrum. And knowing where we are is really helpful, I find. And I know in the book, I put a questionnaire in for people to just discover what whereabouts on they, they are on this spectrum, because it's really useful. And what happens is that if you're talking to somebody from a, a high context culture and you're low context, you need to move to the middle of that spectrum a bit more. And equally, if you're a high context person and you're talking to somebody low context, you need to move to the middle of it. There was one example, I'll just tell, tell you this story briefly of somebody mm-hmm. I contacted in Zimbabwe. She was working for a, a international development agency and she was telling me that the previous week she'd had two emails from donors for her project from I think both of them were in Europe and the first one said to her you'll realize a project report due tomorrow please send immediately that's all they said and Grace said to me this was a week ago and I know it's needed but I just can't face it I'm just so upset by the way that they asked and I just can't face looking at it again. And I said, well, you probably need to, but you know, <laughs> I've done that. Um, and it was a bit rude in anybody's term, you know, not, not to say anything else. But then she said, I had another email from a different donor. Sent the email and said, oh, dear Grace, hope all's well with you. You realise we're coming to the time for the report. You know, can you send it as soon as you can? Hope all is well with your family. Have a good weekend, Thomas. And she said when she received that, she replied immediately. And I, I just thought, well, actually, isn't this interesting that, it's not just about being polite to people. It's actually from a self-interest point of view. If I was the, the donor, I'd say, well, it, it will be better for me to work with the person in their culture. And sometimes I have emails from people who, who are from a high context culture. And I think I, I consider myself a, probably a low context um, culture person. And they're in such beautiful language. It's almost like poetry. But then when you look at it, you think, well, yeah, I'm not quite sure what they're asking me to do here. You know, it's beautifully written, but I'm not quite sure. So there's equally we need to move in the middle again, I think. So I think recognising what culture you're in and what culture other people are in is really crucial to to developing that communication, whether you do it in training or, or just in general communication. Yeah, it's beautiful. And it's like a dance almost sometimes. I think you're right. Yes. Uh, But I wonder as well, we're in the low context in Northern Europe. I wonder if now with lockdown and there's a lot about well-being and talking to your staff and actually not just launching into a meeting, but having that time to talk to people and make sure they're okay. And will that begin the shift? Because at the end of the day, we're all people. And not having time for people means it's a bit miserable, isn't it? Why are you bothering? (laughs) (laughs) 
I, I think you're right. Hopefully we're learning as a society and, and internationally and some of those things hopefully will continue. And I think the, the kind of way that people are working from home more now and things like that, in a way, we need that even more because we, we are, a lot of us are isolated, working on our own in a way that we would never have imagined. And I, I suspect that that will continue. And, and it's got lots of advantages too, I think, for individuals and indeed for organisations who may not be able to afford premises. But primarily, if we have good communication, then we're more likely to feel valued. And I would say do a better job, probably, if we feel valued. So, you know, there's there's a lot of pluses from that. And I would say we, we, we've got to learn from each other and work with people uh, in the way that they understand the world and they with us in, in, in a similar way. And, and I have found in the training experiences I've had that we need that more and more. So if you're doing things in, in a country and you're face to face with with someone from another culture, particularly, but but this is everybody, you pick up how things are before you start. But if you're online, you just don't know where people are coming from. You just, you know, somebody might have had fantastic news about childhood past exams and, you know, within a minute, they're at the, at the screen looking at you and, and trying to process all this information. Or they may have had serious news about a relative who's died. You know, who knows what it is? And, it, and suddenly they're there. So you've got to almost in doing that communication, give a processing time. And I think with, with a training course, you would say, well, we need some sort of activity just to un unravel the things that have been there from before. And then suddenly then to start doing something serious about the training or whatever so we need a period and and it, i think what you the word i would use is being kind to people making sure that people are okay with where they are and maybe you just ask them you know a question and go around a group and say well you know what's happening for you how are you at the moment and and just give a chance just to leave that and just park that somewhere for, for now and then come back to the, the purpose of the meeting. There's, there's a lot of work I, I, I've found useful in that. And one of them is work by Nancy Klein, who's an author. <laughs> and I find her, her sort of thinking terrific. And, and, and that way of sort of how do you work with groups? And I know I went to work with an organisation that she'd done some consultancy work with. Um, and I just knew that this organisation that I was working with was different. I didn't know why at the time. And then at the end, I said, your folks are really great. They're fantastic. How do you manage to achieve that? And she said, well, Nancy did some work with it and we, we're benefiting from that. And I could tell the difference in the organisation. And, and I think wow. that, you know, it just showed me this is something that's really important. Her books are Time to Think. That's right. Yes. Really, really good, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. They and, are. and not to be afraid of silence. Yes, exactly. And yeah. I think one of the things for trainers and, and for people working in organisations that she says is, you know, when somebody comes and asks you a question and says, what do I do about this? What she suggests is that you, you just hold it. You don't tell them what to do. You just get them to tell you what they'd like to do. You just ask them incisive questions and just pull out a bit like coaching, I think, in many ways. But you pull out those things and then you say, is that OK? Oh, yes, that's been so helpful. And they'll go out of the room, she, she says, and say to their colleagues, she was fantastic. I got all these answers. And then you talk to her and she said, well, actually, I didn't do anything. <laughs> you know, I just asked them a few questions and they did it. But they think you're fantastic. But if you just say do this, that's not terribly helpful in the longer term for them to learn how to you know you might sort of say well actually I'm not sure that's going to quite work but do this or try this you know that's a, so those ideas are really interesting I think in training too I, I use those a lot you know just to let people 
sort that out, not for me to be saying this is what you do all the time, but actually to say, no, what would you do? And then sort of work with them on what it is that they've got planned. Absolutely. Lots of of wisdom there. Lots of wisdom. And I think as well for finance people, often we're so used to solving problems that we're straight in with an answer. Whereas actually we'd like to solve our own problems. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I think that's right. And so remember that everybody would rather solve their own problem, I think is. Yeah. 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 But John, your books are full of very practical advice. There's toolkits of icebreakers, some great do's and don'ts lists and, and all of that. But I also really like how you describe the emotions and in particular the fear people might have when they sit in a training room. Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right. And I, and I know when you talk to people um, that they, they will sometimes share that with you. Most people don't actually say that. So you don't know. You can probably see it on their face sometimes. But I think internationally, that's the case. I think it is everywhere that there's that sense of, you know, the fear of going to a finance course and saying, well, what if I get it wrong? What I'm laughed at? Or what if it brings back those negative experiences of the maths lessons at school and the maths teachers? One of the techniques I, I share in the book is around how you can kind of overcome that. And one of the things I sometimes use is ask people at the start, describe to me a maths teacher when you were at school, that one that perhaps had a negative or a positive influence. Sometimes people will say, oh, yeah, this one, he had, a, he had a ruler and he used to hit me when I got it wrong. Or I think, my goodness, I'm not sure that should be <laughs> allowed. But, you know, that's their experience. And no wonder they're finding it difficult. But what I find, too, is if you start with that, that some people then, again, they leave that behind and then can move on. And, and part of what I would say with finance, well, it's not all about maths. You know, if you've got a calculator or a computer, you're probably fine for most of the math side. But it's more about techniques, about learning how you do things, how you interpret information, all of that stuff. But they still fear it. And so so we've got to be very careful and build people's trust. I think that's really essential. Um, And and the thing I, I would say is it's really got to feel safe. If people feel uncomfortable, if you don't feel safe with the trainer, that's when things start to go wrong. You've got to kind of create an atmosphere in that way. And, and one of the things I talk about quite a lot in the book is saving face. And in, in many cultures, that is absolutely crucial. I think in some cultures, our, my culture, I find it's important, but it's not that important. But in other cultures, it's so important that you can't come back from that. So what I mean by saving face is making sure that people are not embarrassed or not made to feel foolish they're not put into a corner where they're talking about something and then they can't to retrieve the situation. And there was a experience I had in, in a training room. It wasn't, it wasn't me doing the training. I was just an observer. And what happened was that somebody was asked to present the work that they'd done. I think it was putting a budget together or something. And the trainer asked this person to come up to the front, which she did. And then they went through every detail of it and said, no, you've got this wrong and this needs to be like this. This is completely wrong. You've, you've made a mess of this, so, which I, you know, you think, my goodness, this makes you cringe, this sort of approach. But what happened, and it shows really the importance of saving face, was immediately after she sat down, she went out of the room. And the, this was about day three of a five day course. And she didn't come back for the two days. In the morning, they had a message saying she wasn't well. And we found out later, really, this upset her. She couldn't really continue with that. She'd been made to feel, well, made to lose face, I I would say, is what the expression would be. 
So we've got to be very careful about that. I think everywhere, but particularly in, in high context cultures, it becomes more important. So saving face is everything, which I think for people traveling, I, for me traveling to a high context culture, that side of it is really such a joy and a treat because you go and nobody will make you feel bad. You know, it's, it's really lovely. And sometimes maybe I need to be made to feel bad. You know, maybe it's in my interest, but people are just so charming and, and wonderful that they don't do so. I think when we do travel and we can travel again and, and, and visit people, that should be our kind of almost something we remember. Actually, people won't make us look foolish, mostly. I mean, occasionally you'll find the odd one who does, of course. But most people make, make me feel comfortable. And, and that means the whole relationship is, is really good and, and works well. And, mm -hmm. you know, we can't ask for a lot more than that. Absolutely. And in the book, there's a chapter dedicated to training in specific countries you use 10 yes. different countries to give people a good view but what I love is it also includes the UK yes <laughs> I, I think I, I wanted to put in there a, a, some sort of measure so not that people are all from the UK or will read it, it will be read internationally but it does mean that my culture is represented there. I found that the most interesting one to, to find out about. And there's a quote by Edward T. Hall, the high context, low context man, when he says, after years of study of other cultures, what I've learned is about my own culture. That's the most important learning for me that I found out more about my, and I think I would say the same really, it just helps you to realize what's going on. But then because you understand that more, you're then able to work and communicate better but yeah 10 was the number that we thought we could put into the book um realistically and to give a range of countries so some african ones some asian ones some middle east some well uk as well in europe um and and they were really representative they weren't just everything but just to say these are the questions and if you're training one of those countries these are things you might like to know about and will be really helpful to you but actually, wherever you're training, these are the kind of questions you need to find out about. So ask about this in advance, try and find out as much as you can, and then you're in a better position. So it's things like what greetings you give to people, what you do about your business cards and course certificates, and what you do in terms of building rapport, or what do you talk about? What are the conversational taboos and what are the things that would go down really well? And, and something about the culture too, how it works and some tips on how you train in those cultures. And a lot of it is is applicable everywhere, but but will be slightly different in different countries, even within regions of countries, it can be different. But it does give you a very good sense of, oh yes, I feel prepared. I know the kind of things that I need to find out about. And and I think also when you're online, that is still the case because I would say it's it's very difficult when you're arriving in a country, you sort of get there and you probably have a day or so before you start doing the work. And you, you're surrounded by the culture and it kind of just seeps into your your mind and your body somehow. And you get to go, oh, that's how they do that. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, online, you just from one moment you, you where you are and then the next moment you're in a land where there's you know people from 10 different countries or whatever. And you think, oh, gosh, what should I do here in terms of cultural awareness? And one of the things I, I've used and it's quite helpful is actually ask people at the start, maybe as an introductory thing, to bring something that represents their culture. So you're just saying, actually, I'm honouring your culture. I recognise that you're coming from a different place to I, me. 
and and I think that sometimes is helpful. It's very interesting as well, actually, but very helpful for the person just to say, "Ah, oh, yes, he's recognising that I'm not speaking the first language that he's speaking, or I, I have not got the same experience." And electricity doesn't always work so well. Some of those things kind of come out of that, and it recognises where you are. <laughs> it reminds me one of the things I used to do was if if a mobile phone went off in a meeting, I would get the participants to do a dance from their culture. <laughs> so I can tell you all the phones went off right at the beginning. <laughs> I don't think I ever I, happened, but yeah. I, I think I'm going to nick that, to that idea, actually. It sounds fantastic. <laughs> so John, you must have a favourite country. We're probably a couple, but one yes. that's close to your heart, maybe. Yeah, I, I think if I was to choose one, I would choose India which I think is always cheating a bit because India is the size of a continent so and, and so many different states and all have an individual cultural and I love being in India I just it's my favorite place to be if I'm not at home um, and I think what I really like about it is that thing when you arrive you get an assault on all your senses mm-hmm. so the smells are so different there's noise everywhere you know you can hear people chattering and you and all life happens on the streets you know it's one of those funny things in India that you think well you know we have separate buildings for things well actually no it's just there and it's on the street so if you go well certainly in cities and 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 smaller towns people are there so if you want your hair cut you just sit on the on the side of the road and somebody cuts your hair for you there are little shrines uh, so if you want to pray you do that on the side of the road as well everything's kind of there but not necessarily going inside somewhere for that so it, it's just fascinating and I think some people really find that so difficult that sort of assault on on what you are but I just love it and I love being with Indian people because they're just the most charming people you can imagine really that you you couldn't do better in Africa I would choose Kenya probably because that was the first country I went to in Africa (laughs) Um, and I've traveled there probably more than anywhere else in Africa and traveled around Kenya and know lots of Kenyan people which is always a delight meeting them I've been very fortunate to experience lots of different ones and they're all special in different ways and you can't really compare some of the experiences yeah and and there is something about one of the first countries you go to as well like Uganda has a special place in my heart and always will and I love meeting Ugandans yes and even though I've been to many many countries there is something about that assault on your senses I think as well when you get off a plane in Africa it's incredible yeah and, 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 it, and it is that feeling when you're there that you're 100 percent there so you know some people say oh well you know w- will i be okay well in a way you might have a bit of jet lag or you might have a bit of culture shock or or, or whatever but by and large you haven't got much of a choice you're there and you've got to carry on i i always find if i get any sense of that culture shock fairly soon when i start meeting people it goes so it's that sense of suddenly i'm in somewhere i don't know where i am i've never been here before you know, I'm here, what's going to happen? And then you meet a few people and you think, oh, yeah, life's fine. <laughs> it's OK. And, uh, and and people are usually charming and lovely and you can't ask for anything else, really. Exactly. And one thing that struck me reading through your books, John, was generational differences. There's a lot of change happening at a kind of rapid pace. And for me, in particular, Bangladesh and Ethiopia, for example, I've gone to a number of times over a, a period. And The last time I was there, I could really see generational differences in that they're more outgoing and less formal, those in their 20s. 
So how about this dynamic in a in a yeah. training? It's it's very interesting. I, I found that too. And I think it's a really important point to recognize. And I think a lot of younger people have become more similar, I think, through the world but by the internet. I mean, just the fact that people can communicate so much more easily and watch the same sort of television program, their, their influences are not that dissimilar in many countries. I think there's that. So I think making sure that you've got people uh, in training courses who who perhaps can cope with some of those things. But if you're working with a mixed age group, you often find that the senior people still say what's to happen. So they're the ones who perhaps would talk. So if you ask a question and you've got somebody who maybe is the manager or director of an organization with some of their staff, it often will be that person who, who answers the question. And then you try and open it out and say, well, would anybody else like to comment? Of course, nobody else does comment. So you've got to be careful to make sure that you include all of the generations in that and and you know i do it by having groups of of people working together on a particular project then reporting back and making sure perhaps there's a younger group and an older group so maybe that's dynamic and then giving them opportunities from the i suppose from the protection of having done this in a group so you're talking on behalf of the group rather than you personally it feels more comfortable then to be able to share what you've discovered um, and if that's different to what the other person has said, again, very much saving face, you know, make sure you save face at all costs. So don't make people feel bad, but at the same time, draw out those other views. And I think the other side of that is really rural and urban, that mixture between the two. So if you find if you work in a big city, um, people's English will often be better if they're from that city. And in an urban area, that isn't the case. You might need, or if people are coming from all around the country and you've got a mixture, you might well need translators for that. And I think the rural areas tend to be more traditional wherever you go. I think that's the case in all cultures. And in Ethiopia, I, I found that too, that sort of generational shift. And I think there's quite a lot of things that people will say it's really sad that we don't do this anymore but maybe people have I, I don't know people have perhaps always said that you know maybe you get to a certain age and then you're saying you know they're not doing this as we did it <laughs> <laughs> and if I find myself tempted to do that I just try and hold back a bit you know because it's not terribly helpful but I think the technological change has been so dramatic over the last 20 years that we're in a different era and the world population is higher as well. So there's more people coming to cities. And, and so there is a different dynamic. And so we have to keep adapting, but fascinating to explore those. Mm. So, John, what's next on your agenda? Well, a number of things. I'm hoping soon that we'll be able to travel again. That, that I, I, it's the first year. You for, and the rest of the world. Um, well, exactly. <laughs> But for me, it's the first year I've not travelled for a long, long time. And I am getting a few withdrawal symptoms of that, I have to say, <laughs> as I'm sure many other people are too. And there's some work that I have planned in Africa and Asia. And if I can travel, I will probably go there. But if not, I'll do it online or find some other way of doing it. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. But like many trainers, I'm adapting face-to-face -face materials to online training. So that's taking a lot of my time at the moment. And I'm still doing work, which I'm really keen to continue to do with an organization called AFID, for the it's Accounting for International Development. Mm -hmm. And it recruits accountants to volunteer for international development programs throughout the developing world. And the work they do is terrific and people go for anything from about two weeks to several months and work with a particular project in a particular country 
and they're matched up with their skills, whatever their skills are, they'll find, AFID will find somewhere to place them with a programme. And they work alongside people, financial people and managers and so on in organisations. And it's a bit like coaching in a way. Again, it's, it's improving the standard of what they're doing or maybe helping them to learn how to report to donors or set up systems or just giving them their knowledge and, and actually helping. And that one is really a great way of, of supporting the sector internationally. But I think it's also a good way if you're, you think you might be interested in working in an international development agency, just to try it out and see if it's for you. I can almost guarantee you'll enjoy the experience, but it might be something that that really then is a life-changing thing. And I think what we've found with the volunteers who have have experienced an AFID project somewhere and come back, I think it's about a third of those people then go to work full-time in the international development sector, which I find is a staggering statistic, really, that it's so life-changing. And it might be something if people are feeling dissatisfied with the work they're doing that, you know, it's something that you can think about. But um, it's also brilliant because if you're at all curious... Two weeks. I mean, when I did it, I had to go for 12 months. Mm. So to be able to do something for a shorter period is, is, is really great for people, I think. Yes. And you're out there and you're working with people knowing whether you can survive cross-culturally, which you don't know if you've never been to a, a, a completely different culture. I think that's, that's really important. And I think one of the questions I know when I started to work for Oxfam was, would you be all right if you were in a different culture? How would you cope? And, and in fact, fortunately, I, I'd done some traveling in the Pacific and and in um, Asia, and I was able to explain that. And then, then they said to me, oh, you'll be all right then. <laughs> so I, I got the job, you know, so that was, that was really, but in my days, AFID wasn't there, of course. But, you know, now that's a really good way. If you said I've worked for AFID, that would answer that question. Mm. Uh, you need the technical skills as well but you know with that and and with some experience of working elsewhere mm. the opportunities are endless mm, brilliant yeah. and another book possibly yes I've got two ideas at the moment so I'm still working on those but yeah it's fun I, I always need to book on the go at any one time brilliant well maybe we'll have you on again once the next book is out John I'd be delighted yes Great. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been a really enjoyable conversation and some great information for people. And what I like about the books as well is they're not just for finance people. No. no. You know, well, that you. they'll they'll be helpful for anyone in an organisation that has teams, really. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Well, thank you. It's been a really good conversation. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Thank Brilliant. You, Susan. Thanks, John. Thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed our exploration of life beyond the numbers, please subscribe to this podcast and share it with others who might also be curious about their own life beyond the numbers.